Welcome back to Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations about all types of diversity-related topics. Today, I am joined by Joel Perez, who is an educator, coach, an entrepreneur, a mentor, and business advisor, as well as an interim executive director. Joel has a PhD in higher education administration, as well as an extensive experience in all things leadership. All of that coupled with his personal history and experience, I'm pretty fired up to get rolling here. So welcome to the show, Joel. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Heather. I'm really excited about spending some time with you and sharing a little bit more about me and and my approach to challenges people might have, as well as any questions that you are posing today. So thank you for the invitation and ready to jump in. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So when I was um, doing a little background research before we we got on the call here, I got to be honest, you do a lot, <laughs> like a lot. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of really cool stuff. You also do like a lot of um, like volunteer type work as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, I'd love to get into that too, maybe a little bit later, but just to start out, I wonder if you can start on a personal note. So yeah. what? It, who are you as a person outside of all of your business experience? Yeah, well, um, that's a good question to, to get us started. I am, you know, I guess I'll start um, not too early, like at birth, but uh, I will give you a little bit more of a perspective so you get to know me outside of what I do currently am doing. Uh, but I am a um, first-generation college graduate. Um, I am a son of immigrants. Um, my father, Juventino Perez, and my mother, Trinidad Perez, uh, immigrated from Mexico in the late 50s. And they, they met in Los Angeles, fell in love, got married, and uh, had three boys. And I'm the youngest of three boys. Uh, Spanish was my first language. Um, and don't actually ever remember learning English. I just have always known English. Um, and which is a little different from some of my um, peers and colleagues and and friends who also identify as Mexican-American or Latino. And I identify as Mexican-American. I grew up in an urban environment when I was growing up. Um, there were some white families in our community. And slowly that started to change. So uh, I was... Uh, observing, even though at the time I didn't have language for it, um, white flight. Older folks were were retiring, their kids were moving them into homes um, to get out of that community. Spanish became the prominent language of my neighborhood. And that's the environment I grew up in. And when I was in elementary school, there was a lot of, a, a lot of different ethnicities in, in the school. As I progressed, as I got older, middle school, high school, Predominantly Latino, Mexican American, Latin American uh, was a community, and I spoke Spanish at home. My parents um, said immigrated; they became U.S. citizens thanks to the uh, 1986 package of immigration reform that Reagan signed, um, and uh, are now U.S. citizens. But they don't speak very good English, so I still, as a kid, have to interpret for them and/or translate documents for them. And so that's a little bit of, a, of, of my start, my background. I actually grew up in the church, Pentecostal, which has a lot of fun stories to go along with that. Grew up in a predominantly, uh, again, uh, not probably all Latino congregation. 
um, and uh, decided to go off to college and went to a predominantly white institution, which then led to really forming my worldview, particularly around diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I was one of the few Latinos in my college and then realizing that I wanted to be a role model and mentor other students like myself. And that led me to a career in higher education administration um, up to the last uh, institution I worked at leading a, in a C-suite position at, at a small private liberal arts college in Southern California. Uh, but I'm from Los Angeles, although I've also lived in Oregon for seven years, Washington for two. So up and down the West Coast, a lot of that, uh, all of that was because of the colleges and universities that I worked at. And then recently in 2019, started coaching and then coaching and consulting came in early in 2020 and then the pandemic hit. And then I decided to launch my own business. Um, and so taking all that experience I had growing up, uh, the mentoring, the advising, uh, working with other or undergraduates that are Latino or identify as Latino and mentoring them and helping them navigate the um, higher education uh, environment in order to be successful as students. Um, and so I did a lot of that work in my career and, and has really prepared me well for the coaching and consulting that I do. In addition to because of my own parents' immigrant story, even though I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen, I have that privilege. Uh, the other piece people obviously can't see because they're not going to see the video, uh, but I'm white presenting. Uh, people don't n normally know that I'm, I'm, I'm Mexican-American or Latino uh, until they see my last name or hear me pronounce my last name. Uh, which I, I will acknowledge and, and uh, say it's a privilege because I'm able to be in spaces. People generally listen to me. Um, m some of that's because I, I present white, uh, whereas I have colleagues who are darker skin, uh, speak with an accent, and that um, causes biases to occur in the particular leadership roles that they're in. And, and I have the privilege of not having that. And so that means for me, that means using my voice and my influence when I'm in those spaces to bring awareness to things that maybe are being overlooked or calling out the biases that may be existing and or whether that naming those for people so they acknowledge some of the microaggressions that are, are, are being shared in, in meetings and, uh, and conversations. So that's a lot. I know I said a lot, uh, but that, that's me. I'm also married. Uh, my partner and I have been married. Um, this December will be 25 years. Um, we have four children, raising four biracial children. Yes, we are very busy in our household. Um, we have a 10-year-old, actually a 10-year-old today. Um, I know you'll be hearing this recording later, but 10-year-old today, she's, she's 10 today, and a, all the way up to 17-year-old. And they, we have four kids attending four different schools, uh, which is a whole other story in itself. Uh, but my partner and I have been married for 25 years, and she and I met during your undergraduate years and uh, fell in love and, and now, you know, on the, on the doorstep of 25 years this December. Wow. Okay. So first of all, that's congratulations in a world of like three to five year divorce tenure. That's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> spectacular. Uh -huh. um, and then happy birthday to the 10 year old, a happy belated because by the time this comes out, it will definitely be belated. But I, I'm curious on a couple of things. You said a couple of things. First off, 
you said Spanish was your first language, mm-hmm. but then you, and of course you speak English, but you don't remember learning English. So do you think that was just maybe more a product of just being immersed in it because you're in Los Angeles and, you know, it, we speak English? Yeah. Just the community? Yeah, that's a good. So I have, I have reflected on that and what I, there's no research. This is just me anecdotally sort of spitballing um, is I have two, I have two older brothers who went through the school system before they're, they're a bit older than me. And I suspect that as I was growing up and developing, they were learning English and they were speaking to me in English. And I just picked up the language that way, even though my parents uh, do not speak English. Um, now it's very, it's very broken. Uh, they're able to do some basic communication, but they've never learned English. And so I, and I suspect also because there were, there wasn't, dual immersion programs. There weren't. Um, the programs that existed when I was in elementary school were sort of you were thrown into learning English in an English classroom. Uh, there wasn't a lot of um, uh, help for, for primary Spanish speakers. Um, and I, you're right. I was probably just immersed in it. Uh, and I had friends doing this, experiencing the same thing. And we grew up together going to the same church where we were speaking English, even though our parents spoke Spanish. Um, and so that just developed over time. And the downside is I lost a lot of my Spanish. <laughs> and I just recently got asked if I could coach in Spanish. And I had to say no, because I don't have a mastery of the language, the technical side of the language, the way I would need to in order to coach effectively. And so so you find you will find me now. Uh, in the evenings with my Duolingo app open and taking Duolingo Spanish just to remind myself and get me to think in Spanish again. And and so I've lost a lot of Spanish, mainly because of the education system I'm a, I'm a product of and not having to speak Spanish, um, even in college. And, and my parents, I speak Spanish to them, but that's really the only place I'm using my Spanish. Although now the work that I'm doing at the Immigration Resource Center, uh, where I'm the interim executive director, on occasion, I will have to interpret. And that, again, causes, it's not like I have, it's not like I've lost the language. There's muscle memory there, but I need to exercise. Uh, And that's hence why the Duolingo um, app. Okay. I, uh, this is like the second or third time that Duolingo has come up. So if anybody from Duolingo is listening, maybe we can get a sponsorship around here. (laughs) <laughs> we keep bringing it up, but um, I'm curious about your parents, and I know that that's not uncommon mm-hmm. um, for immigrants to come over, and especially you know location specific, right? Mm-hmm. You're in LA, so there's there's a there's a larger population um, in that area of Spanish speakers in general. Yes. What is your opinion? I guess because you can't really speak directly for them, but I am just fascinated with the fact that. They've been here so long and they're still speaking Spanish. For me, it would be so anxiety inducing Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't, I I would feel like, geez, someone's going to take advantage of me all the time, maybe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So do you have any thoughts on, you know, why they haven't learned and, and, and their feelings on it? Yeah, we've, I've talked to my parents a little bit or asked them questions, um, Generally, the response I get is we just have um, never had to learn because we the communities we were operating in were other Spanish speakers. And I do remember my dad telling me we, we, we had an uncle who really helped them, um, helped my dad uh, 
he's my, my dad's brother-in-law or wasn't my brother-in-law. He's passed now, helped him immigrate into the U S uh, help him get a job, interpreted all the paperwork, the necessary paperwork, uh, helped them buy a house. And he was the English speaker. So my dad, uh, could communicate to him in Spanish and my, my uncle would interpret everything, uh, translate. And then my dad and mom were able to operate even in the community we're in, even though initially it was primarily English speaking and now it later became primarily Latino, um, that they just felt like they never had to because they were always surrounded by Spanish speakers. Now, I, on the flip side, I have an aunt, my dad's sister, who was married to my uncle, the one I just talked about, who felt just like you said, like, I need to learn English because the anxiety, I want to be able to communicate with my kids' teachers. And so she took it upon herself to teach herself how to speak English and, and to practice. And that was just never a drive for my parents. Um, and, and I don't know, there might be some other deeper feelings there, deeper reasons, but they've not shared those with me other than to say that we just never felt like we needed to. And, and because of one, kids who spoke English who could translate, interpret, and family and friends who also spoke Spanish and who could interpret for them, depending on what what the context was they they found themselves in. Um, so that that that's my response to that question. That's that's the best answer I have, um, given what I know of what they've shared with me. No, and I think it makes sense. And, it, and like I said, I think it is. It probably is location specific. And of course, if they had someone that they trusted that could do interpreting um, and translation for things that were of importance, like buying a house and, you know, applications of, of such. So just curious about that, because I yeah, know that that comes good. up quite a bit, actually. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I also know you said that your parents' immigration story was a big factor, influence, inspiration to you becoming a person that basically doesn't take things for granted and mm -hmm. possibly even pushed you to have the success that you've had. Do you have any specific ideas or examples of what those triggers were, like what you saw them go through or what they experienced that told you, this is how I now have to be? Like, how did you get that mindset? Yeah, that, that's, that's good. I, I, it, it, what you just asked me, um, sparks a lot of memories and thoughts. Um, I, you know, my, my dad growing up, um, there's a couple of, of moments in my family history that are, that are really vivid for me. Uh, one is my, my father worked at a foundry painting lamps was sort of what he did. <laughs> uh, and that was his job early, as early as I can remember. And I remember him one night, or yeah, one night he had come home from working. I think it was working the late shift. They dismissed him and he came home frantically searching for papers to prove something. I don't know what it was. I don't remember. And it wasn't around his uh, status or anything like that. I think they, they were, he says that someone had it out for him at, at the, at the, um, um, the factory he was working at and he lost his job. And even though it was a blue collar job, uh, you know, that was an early experience. So my dad became unemployed and we were already living paycheck to paycheck. Um, that became much more pronounced. My uncle stepped in, some other folks to kind of help us make ends meet. And then my dad was able to get a job 
with um, someone from church who needed help. He was a carpet layer and he needed a crew uh, and my dad was available. So my dad started helping him out. And the other vivid memory I have is, so I went to year round school back when there was year round school. So it was four months on, two months off. Vacations were never like summer. I didn't have summers off because my my track, they, we did tracks back then, A, B, and C. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but I remember because I would I would be in school in the summer and I, and and two months off I would go to work I would work with my dad he would take me with him and we were we were working in an office uh, a medical office laying carpet and um, I could see my dad just really he was getting older his body was starting to break down he's probably my age now or a little actually two or three years younger than I am now at the time. And I could tell he was really working hard and, and he was, he had a carpet up on his shoulder, roll of carpet on his shoulder. And, um, I could tell he was, uh, struggling, but he, you know, got it up the stairs and got it in and, and, um, he looked at me and he said, he said, mijo, son, I want you to work with your mind, not with your hands. And at that moment, I knew that I needed to go to college and, because of what he just had said. Um, it was, I took it as not a challenge, but as I desire something more for you than what you see me doing here right now. And and that led me to pursue college and navigate the application process and figure out how to get into college, even though the grades weren't the greatest. Um, but that's my, I mean, that, that, that is the story I share that led me to pursue higher education even though at the time I didn't know how to even start that. I didn't hear about going to college till I was a freshman in high school. And now I have kids. I mean, I wrote my dissertation when I had young kids and they could say the word dissertation. I didn't even, I didn't even know what a dissertation was when I was my age, even in the ninth grade in high school. And so that started the process. And I share that story with people, um, students that I worked with um, when I'm sharing my story uh, so people know that there is an immigrant story behind the success I've been able to achieve that is a driver. But I also know that, yes, I've been able to be successful, but and I am a success story. And they, my parents would say they have a lot of pride in what I've been able to accomplish and what they see. But there's about 15 more stories of people who don't have the same experience that I had. And that also drives me to be a representative of my community to advocate for change, systemic change, so that people like myself and other people of color or people from underrepresented groups could could stay true to their salient identities and achieve the things that they want to achieve without feeling like they need to give up a piece of themselves. Yeah. For anybody listening that has never tried to carry a carpet, (laughs) they're not, they're not light. No, they're not. And that's carpet, right? But I think that there is, um, I think there is a definite disconnect across a lot of um, households about the actual physical impact of manual labor. And if that is your means to survive and something happens that just the rug is i mean Mm -hmm. if that sounds cliche now that i say the rug is pulled out from under you now we're talking Mm -hmm. about laying carpet but Mm -hmm. the point is is 
you're right. You are a success story, but you took that under your own. You did that. Mm -hmm. So thankful for your dad that he said the words to you, because I'm sure almost every parent that cares at least thinks that, you know, they want better for their kids, but it's not always spoken. It's not always said. Um, So I think that's amazing. And I think it is important to, to just highlight the fact that, yeah, these stories are a lot, a lot of hard work that a lot of people don't quite understand what that even looks like. The other thing, so you you work with, and I think this ties into what we're talking about here, but you work a lot in the field of leadership, yes, right? And helping people just interact with other people. I mean, even just not even leadership, but how people interact. And you had talked about how someone's personal identity really affects, impacts, and it informs how they interact and lead. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so one of the dimensions I coach in or what I, what I've labeled it is identity conscious leadership coaching. And what that means is that I, I help clients stay true to their identities to be successful in the roles that they serve. So an example would be myself. So one of my salient identities is Mexican American, right? I I shared that. So how does that impact how I show up at work? How can it impact the way I show up at work? Well, if I'm working at a predominantly white organization, at times I may have to code switch, right? Where I, I, in order to blend in or feel like I fit in, I have to say certain things. I have to act a certain way that may be countercultural to my, to my values that I have as a Mexican American. So communal family, um, where I may be working, this is an extreme example of an organization that isn't communal, that doesn't necessarily take their employees, uh, treat them in a way that like their family, right? And so I have to, in order to be successful in this organi- um, uh, hi- hypothetical organization, is that I have to align myself in a way so I don't rock the boat, right? So that I, I am uh, going along to get along, Right. Because I know that in order for me to, if I desire to advance the career, to go up the career ladder, uh, I got to act a different way in order to get there. So what I do with clients is one, particularly those that have salient identities. So I have clients who are women, women of color, men of color, uh, members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, We talk about how their identities are showing up at work. And how do they feel about that? And are they be able, generally when people come to me, it's usually by referral. And some, you know, someone might say, Joel, you were recommended as someone who can help me uh, stay true to who I am and still be successful. Um, and that's what we do. We, so we focus on identities and, and the impact our identities have on how we show up and how we lead and using those as a source of strength or an asset as opposed to a deficit. Now, what generally happens, Heather, is nine out of 10 times I'm working with the client and they realize that their values are not aligned with their organizational values that, that, that their organization has. There's, there's a misalignment, incongruence. And then we move to career coaching <laughs> um, about maybe this might not be the right organization for me because as a, a Latino man, Latinx man, um, I... I realize that I, I, I need to be able to go home at five or six o'clock to be with my family, my kids, because family is important to me. Because I've had to suppress that desire, I've 
I'm now in an unhealthy place physically and emotionally that is now starting to impact how I sleep, how I eat. And so what the academic term of what people who are experiencing this is called racial battle fatigue. They are tired and they're tired of fighting. And so they either do this go along to get along to a point where they now are ignoring their salient identity in an unhealthy or it's not healthy. And so I work with clients, uh, one, identify those salient identities and then to use those as a strength and then also to to figure out ways that they can stay true to their identities. And they may ultimately mean that the organization they're currently with is not the right organization. And um, they may need to go somewhere else or find something else to do so that they're in a much healthier and better space. Okay. So much. So much <laughs> that I'm thinking right now. So the, the first thing I want to mention is this is something that I have also struggled with it. Recently, I've been thinking a lot. Someone had, it was actually on a LinkedIn, posted a question about reactions and interactions in the workplace. In this case, it was in the workplace, Mm -hmm. but it was asking, you know, best self, authentic self. I can't remember all the options. And I'm thinking for me, the goal is always to be as authentic as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Always. Now, yes. but but th- there's multiple versions of that for me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if I get, and I'm I'm working on it on the podcast, but if I get really excitable or I'm passionate about something, I will start to just, I swear, it's just part of my language. You know, it all just mm-hmm. comes out. That's authentically me. Mm-hmm. But also when I'm sitting in a client's office in a business setting, I don't swear. I don't have the feeling of that's not in my language. And that's also authentically me. Mm-hmm. Um, so wrapping this all back to another point that you mentioned, the code switching, here is what I struggle to wrap my head around and you might have thoughts on like how we can move forward collectively to make that not necessary. Mm. Because if we're talking about diversity and inclusion, I understand the na- natural inclination of feeling like you need to code switch, but the goal is that you shouldn't have to. The goal is you should be able to be you. You're not, if you're not, you know, being you shouldn't be inherently offensive to anybody. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? So what are your thoughts on that? The, 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 the need to code switch versus pushing the boundary and saying, I'm not going to code switch because this is who I am and I'm going to stand in that. Well, I would say my initial response to that is one, getting really clear on, on which identities you hold right? So to self-awareness and then, and then identifying how those identities show up in a work environment, in your case with the clients, in a client's office, a a meeting. Um, And then the question I always ask or or will inevitably ask is, are you okay with code switching right now? Now, Heather, you might say, absolutely not. And then we say, okay, so what does that mean for you if you're not comfortable with it and you're having to do with it? Or my client Joel might say, actually, I'm okay with it. I'm I'm good. So then my response to Joel would be, okay, are you in a healthy place? Are you happy with your success that you're experiencing? Are you not happy? And if if Joel says, ultimately, you know what? I'm good. I I, I love it. Um, 
I'm okay. Then I'll say, Joel, then that's your experience, right? I will say, I will ask questions about healthy boundaries. How do you feel internally? Um, but ultimately, like with any coaching, it should be client-centered. So even though I may have some doubts about Joel's experience, I can ask questions to help him or maybe create some dissonance so he takes time to reflect. But if he ultimately f- says like, coach switching is just a part of the job, I'm okay with it. I, as a coach, have to say, okay, so that's fine. But if Heather is coming at me and say, absolutely not, I'm not, this is not good. And like, okay, well, let's talk about how is it getting in the way or what are you experiencing? How are you feeling? Is this something you want to change? Um, how do you feel like we, how do you feel, Heather, or what do you feel like needs to change in order to feel better about being in this organization where you're having to do this all the time? And then we talk more and help, and I would help Heather unpack that more, maybe to a point where she feels like there's incongruence or there's enough there to help her mitigate the impact of code switching so she stay able to be healthy and effective as a, uh, at whatever her role in that organization might be. So I have clients like Joel. There aren't very many because people realize once they realize they're code switching, and then the impact it's having on them emotionally, physically, then it leads to a desire to change that. And which ultimately could be either, you know, getting themselves out of those situations or just being clear about who they are. And then hopefully the organization is understanding and can live with that. Like I said, nine out of 10 times, generally the organization's not going to change, but sometimes the organization realizes it needs to change. Um, I don't have very many clients like Joel. I have more clients like Heather who are help me get out of this situation because it's not healthy. Uh, and I, now I realize how unhealthy it is. And maybe it was okay early in my career when I was a junior executive or working the phones or whatever. But now in this senior level administrative role or mid-level administrative role, I am tired and I am not healthy. Help me. <laughs> and that's that's right there, Heather, is my target client, is when clients realize or, you know, you talk about, I mean, you probably know this from a, fun, a sales funnel, right? And, and, and your, your, your ideal client or your client avatar, um, my client avatar, one of them is people in the mid-level to senior level executive roles who are tired and their pain point is they're tired of code switching. Um, and they want something different for themselves. It's not people generally early on in their career out of undergrad who just got their first job. Um, although sometimes those folks experience the same things, but my target client is someone who's in the mid to senior level role and a person of color. I feel like that makes a lot of sense. First of all, I'm happy to hear that you're coming across more people that are saying, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, it's it's okay to be whoever is, you know, in the space where they're, they're fine with it. If it doesn't bother them, mm-hmm. that's fine. But my interpretation is that exactly what you said is that it's exhausting. Yeah. It is mentally exhausting and it shouldn't be that burden. Mm-hmm. And so I think that actually it, it feels like it makes a really perfect connection to the fact that you're saying – you have to be able to know what your identity or identities are because yep. we like to pretend we're, we're mono here. We're not. We've got <laughs> right. a lot of them. Yep. Uh-huh. Multiple personalities is not just a mental disorder. It is a fact of life. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 Um, so 
once you are comfortable in that and once you've identified that, of course you're going to step into your power and say, no, I'm not going to shut down for somebody else anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I love that. Um, I'm wondering. No, I was going to say, no, I will say that when I'm invited to speak to young professionals uh, or be on a panel, I talk about how unhealthy it is to code switch like that all the time. And my hope is I get to younger professionals to then realize I need to do the work of identifying my values and what's important to me in helping me identify the type of organization I want to work at so they're more selective so they don't end up getting to a point where they need to hire me where they're just so exhausted and tired is identifying the organizations, institutions early on so they can thrive and that that's a positive thing, but they need to do it early on in their careers, not wait till they're in their mid to late level, late stages of their career. Right. Well, and it's important for a multiple reasons, but the thing that I'm connecting it back to right now is, is the example that you gave with your father. Your father can tell you that this is what he wants for you, you have to act on it and do it. Yep. So being able to say this, that's the first step is say and encourage and uplift people as young as possible into this position of taking power over their own, you know, or autonomy over jobs or personality or culture. It doesn't matter. All of mm. it. Yep. They are the ones that have to step into it then, though. Correct. Mm-hmm. So fantastic. Have you seen in all the people that you work with, have you seen specific differences in how people lead based on their culture or based on their race or socioeconomic differences? Yeah. So yes, once they tap into it. So my, you know, the, someone like, well, take myself, for instance, when I identify that community and family are important, my approach was to treat my, the folks that reported to me like, like community. Uh, and if family is important to me, also helping them not make it necessarily forcing them to make family important, but creating an environment where they feel like their, their ability to spend time with their family is important. Um, and so, yes. And then also, you know, um, talking about the characteristics of certain, the certain identities we hold is really important. So what are the, those characteristics? So I work with clients identifying those characteristics and then saying, okay, how can those help uh, be more effective in the role that you have uh, as a manager, as a leader, um, you know, uh, to, to not always feel like they have to act a certain way, right? Or, or to be a certain identity that they're not. So, th- so I share my own example because I do have, I mean, a lot of the clients I have, I would, would say the same thing. That's how they're, that's how they, they leverage that or, or they lean into that is, is identifying your salient identities, then the characteristics, and then asking how do those show up? And if they're not showing up, how can you have them show up to help you be more effective at what you're doing? All right. What is cultural humility? Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you asked that question. One, because obviously, you know, my, a little bit of my background, but I just spent lunch yesterday talking with a colleague about this idea of, of a book I have about really unpacking cultural humility. Um, cultural humility is about um, moving. So I talk about it in, in the terms of moving from cultural competence to cultural humility. So not that competence isn't important. What, but for me, as I share with groups when I do presentations, competence 
eludes or not eludes, but competence um, can be taken as something to be achieved, right? It's a workshop I attended. It's a box I'm checking. It's the I I'm dotting, the T I'm crossing. I've attended this great workshop and now I'm competent. <laughs> um, and if your bar is competent, uh, in my opinion, then it's not a very high bar. Um, because especially doing work around diversity, equity, inclusion, you need to be more than competent in order to be effective. Um, and so I talk about moving from competence to humility and what humility is, it's having a posture of humility in engaging in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what I mean by that, as you know, Heather, um, there are, you know, with DEI work, uh, or people doing DEI consulting, if you don't have the, things change, right? So diversity, we move from diversity to equity to inclusion and now belonging. So I'm sure you've heard of DEIB. <laughs> um, and so things are changing. Not only changing, they've changed. Demographic, demographics have changed no matter where you live. Um, there are much more different people, different perspectives, different worldviews. So if if your goal is competence, then you 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 have a you've achieved something, but things are still changing. You have to have a posture of humility because it's acknowledging that you don't have all the answers. So even though you attended a workshop five years ago that you thought was really helpful in giving you language, skill sets, it's probably outdated uh, or not applicable to certain to certain things of doing the work around diversity, equity, inclusion. And so if you don't have a posture of humility and acknowledge that, you're not going to be very effective. You're going to, you're going to mess up. And not to say that I, I, yes, I do a lot of consulting and coaching around diversity, equity, inclusion, but I am, I am a student. I continue to learn things, but it's because I have a posture of humility to acknowledge that I don't have all the answers and I need to be humble about that and be okay with that. Humility also eludes that you are comfortable with ambiguity Right, which I think doing this work, you have to be comfortable with ambiguity because you just don't know what the context is going to be. And you have to be willing to be curious because you're always learning. It's almost like lifelong learning. It's having a posture of lifelong learning. But it takes a posture of humility in order for you to be effective at the work because you know you're never going to get to – there's not an end point. Uh, and that's what's really frustrating for people some, some of them are my friends and colleagues who are like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Well, I can tell you what to do right now, but five years later, it's going to be different. And if you don't have a skill set of being um, nimble and acknowledging that you don't have all the answers and being okay with that, you're really going to struggle. And so I want people to move from competency to humility and having that open posture right? of I'm here to learn. I'm always going to be a student. I'm going to learn from my client. I'm going to learn from people who are different than me. It's going to mean probably having to change my actions and behavior based on the context I find myself in. But it's not just about competency. It's about it's about humility. So that's the work I do. I try to center my work in that I do around div- in diversity, equity, inclusion with uh, center it into, in cultural humility because it helps me be more effective. And also people generally are disarmed by my approach because they know that I'm not going to come in and and I may have some expertise, but I'm also a student and I need to be okay with maybe you not agreeing with me, but we're going to have a conversation and be, it's okay to be uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you questions. 
I want you to ask me questions. We may not ultimately agree, or I may not be able to convince you that something is happening in the world, but at least we had a conversation where we sought to understand each other, and maybe we're both better people from having that conversation. So that's how I would frame what cultural humility is. I love it. Everybody that just listened to that, rewind and listen again. It is so important, specifically getting comfortable in ambiguity, in in not having so much in life. I, I mean, I get it. I'm a business owner. I, I I would love to have everything like, yes, 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 no, no. You know, I would love it lined up. I would love it to be perfect. But I just know that that's not how it works all the time. Yep. Um, we want everything to be black and white, yes or no, very streamlined, very simple, pretty little boxes. That's not how life works, especially when you're dealing with humans. I mean, think about this, especially when we're dealing with cultures. Cultures change and adapt. Your experience was very different as a child than your dad or your mom's experience as a child. Your children are having an entirely different experience. Correct. We're so quick to say, back in the good old days when I was a kid, we used to do this. And it's like, that was great. That's fantastic. I'm glad you have fond memories of that. But that doesn't mean what some, was happening right now is negative. That's their good old days happening in the present. So I love that. And I think it is so, so important of a, a concept for people to understand. Yeah. Um, because as much as it would be super convenient for everything to be clean and simple, that's simply never going to be the case. It's true. Um, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. What else are you working on right now? Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you really want to bring up or do you have a project that you're working on that you want to share? Yeah. So, well, I obviously I coach, right? Executive leadership coaching. Um, that continues to be an ongoing thing because I love helping people. <laughs> if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing this work. I wouldn't be coaching. Uh, I do consulting. Um, the the main area I do consulting on is I help organizations be intentional about uh, integrating diversity, equity, inclusion into how to think about uh, integrating into the ethos of the organization. So it becomes part of the DNA. So it's not, uh, and the metaphor I use, and it's not my metaphor, it's my doctoral advisors who, who she says, it's like technology. Uh, when technology was first introduced, there was a lot of resistance right? We had to coerce people to use technology. I remember being in college and getting extra credit because I used a Macintosh to write my paper, even though I had taken a, a typewriter to school. The school wanted to move towards being a Mac campus and they wanted everyone to be able to use a Mac. Uh, that was the incentive, right? Now we can't think of any organization that doesn't have technology as part of their DNA. Uh, in fact, we'd probably be really suspicious of the fact that an organization doesn't have any technology or people don't know how to use technology. And so what, similar to DEI in, in the sense of, you know, DEI, a lot of resistance, right? Um, I don't want to have to change. Uh, you have those early adopters, the laggards, the people in the middle, right? If you look at the change curve, it requires resources, coaching. And I want to help organizations get to a point where it just is part of who they are. And they don't have to have a separate committee thinking about how do we do this work. It just, there's questions being asked all the time, just like, when you show up to work your first day, you get a laptop or a desktop. When you show up work today for, you know, Nike, you are automatically onboarded with 
knowing that DEI is a value and we need to think about how we're integrating it into every aspect of our work. That's what I'm helping organizations do, and particularly in, in that space of diversity, equity, inclusion. So or, organizational change, organizational development. Um, I don't necessarily drop in and just do workshops because I, I think if you're going to do workshops, you need to pair it with coaching in order for deep learning to happen. Uh, or else, again, you go back to that checking the box. I become competent, um, which is um, a myth. Um, so I don't have any particular projects that I can share publicly that I'm working on. Uh, but that's the area. That's the spaces I'm in. I'm also currently the interim executive director for the Immigration Resource Center of San Gabriel Valley, which is in Southern California. And we provide low-cost immigration services to our clients. And and because of my own immigrant story with my parents, and the students I've worked with, that's a passion of mine. Um, and so I'm helping them build capacity, helping fundraise, all those things. Um, so that that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm working on, as well as raising four kids and getting ready to celebrate my 25th year anniversary. A lot. So yes. a lot. And I, and I like <laughs> that you kind of hinted that there's not anything else that you can publicly share right now, guys. I think that's a hint. Yep. So when in just a couple minutes, when you share your info where people can connect, I would suggest you connect because it sounds like there's. A- I, I will share. I will share one thing. So if people are on LinkedIn, LinkedIn Learning, I have a course on LinkedIn Learning on um, strategies to improve self awareness, um, and so I would encourage you uh, all who are listening to check it out. Uh, I talk about bias. I talk about developing self awareness and and the role it plays in helping us be success be better leaders and more successful in what we're doing. Awesome. Okay. So everybody check that out. From your let me let me see if how do I how do I want to phrase this? Let's just be simple. What is the one thing that you wish more people understood and knew about what life is like for a Mexican immigrant family? Mm. It's hmm. a good question, Heather. I, I think I think what I would communicate or what I what I will share is um, realize that or have an under, a realization that nothing is handed to people. I mean, there are, yes, there are handouts per se, but immigrant families don't take those things for granted. Uh, they're really helpful uh, and grateful. And also realize that, that depending on the type of industry they're working in, that they work extra hard. And they're frontline people in the sense of if you look at the pandemic and the in the communities the pandemic has impacted the most, it's frontline workers and generally those are people of color. And in particular, immigrant immigrant families, if you take the agricultural industry and the workers on the fields uh, putting food on our plates, I had, you know, I have uncles who do that work and cousins and that's important for people to realize is where their food's coming from and challenges that immigrant uh, communities face uh, in that area. And they have a really strong desire to be part of our country. And even though the country isn't always very hospitable, uh, they still come because they feel necessary. Like when I asked my dad why, and he's like, I wanted, I wanted to experience something different for myself. And I knew I was going to have a family at one point and I wanted them to have access to the opportunities that are available in this country. So the pursuit of the American dream. Um, and and there's a lot of undocumented folks out there that you don't know that they're undocumented and they're not necessarily going to share that with you, but they could be the ones who are putting food on your table and who are your friends, who are your kids' friends at the schools they go to. 
So being open that there is um, folks like that in your community and that you need to be receptive and or more knowledgeable about the issues that impact immigrants. Yes, I agree. We need to flip the switch on flip the switch or change the narrative on what factory work and what field work. That is very hard labored work and it's so necessary. And for some reason, we've always really looked down on those jobs. And I don't know why, because you tell me what, that's not the type of job I want to do which means I should actually be praising the people that are doing it. Correct. They're breaking their back so that I, you know, can do something different and we all have choice, but so yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, what are five words that you would use to describe yourself? Um, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm not, I'm going to take this as one, one word, but it's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, family, faith, hard work, and compassion. Perfect. And where can people find you to connect and learn more and keep in touch with you? Yeah. So people can LinkedIn. So uh, Joel Pettis, uh, if you type in in the search, Joel Pettis, my profile will come up. The other place you can go to is my website, which is uh, www.apoyocoaching.com. Apoyo, A-P-O-Y-O, which means support for in Spanish, coaching.com. Uh, is another way to find me and my email address is there. If you want to schedule some time to talk, you can do that through the website. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. There's like little pieces of a ton of stuff that I'm like, oh gosh, I wish I would have asked that because I feel like it's so important. You have so much to share and I really appreciate you taking the time. It was great to be here, Heather. Thank you for inviting me and I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for joining on another episode of Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply, and I hope our conversation with Joel today did just that. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed on today's episode are our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own fact-based conclusions. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. And also make sure you check out the show note links for Joel's information, his website, and his LinkedIn. If you enjoyed the show, we would very much appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. And please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. You said, mijo, son, I want you to work with your mind, not with your hands.